Hey, it's Heike. I was wondering if you're doing the same thing. Categorizing habits, that is. Do you have a category for good habits and a category for bad habits? Well, you're not alone. Many of us are striving to do better in the good category and striving to reduce or minimize the not so good habit category. But categories seem to have a life of its own. They seem almost that we can't control them and willpower is definitely not the answer when it comes to habits. Today you will learn that you can change your thoughts and rewrite the story that you have been telling yourself about habits. And today's habit is about the habit of drinking alcohol or alcoholism. You will learn about the beliefs around alcohol, how they affect your body and how they're different for men and women, and how you can get a hold or a handle on your drinking habits in today's episode. But before we dive in, I would love it if you left a review on the Apple podcast. This will help the show to be found by more people. So with that, let's dive into today's episode. I'm Heike Yates, a fitness and nutrition coach with 30 years of experience. I empower women over 50 to take back their health and strength to lead a vibrant life. Right now, you're joined by thousands of women over 50 around the world who stop dimming their light and instead ignite their spark. On this podcast, I do what I do best, taking complicated information about fitness, nutrition, and mindset strategies and breaking it down into baby steps that are simple, actionable, and sustainable so you can implement them into your life. I regularly interview some of the most inspiring women who share their honest stories on how they went from their worst to their best life so that you know you're not alone in your struggles. Join me as we redefine what aging looks and feels like by taking action and saying, yes, I can. This is the Pursue Your Spark podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Molly Watts. She is the author, mentor, and podcast host of Breaking the Bottle Legacy. Breaking the Bottle Legacy is dedicated to helping daily drinkers and adult children of alcoholics change their relationship with alcohol. After living under the influence of her mother's alcohol abuse for most of her life, and loathing what alcohol had meant to their relationship, it felt like a bitter irony when Molly had to acknowledge her own dysfunctional drinking. She changed her 30 plus year daily drinking habit and was able to create a peaceful relationship with alcohol, past, present, and future. She now helps others who worry about their drinking do the same. Molly, welcome back to the show. Hey, Heike. So good to see you. I know it's been such a long time. And the last time we talked about habits also. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It's a, it was kind of a, 
one of those things where I was talking on one side about all this positive, healthy, happy stuff. And at the same time, feeling kind of like an imposter because I knew that behind the scenes, I had this, this one pretty bad habit that I just couldn't seem to shake. Yeah. But here we are today with your new brand and your new learned skills and habits. I want to know, when did you realize that your mom was an alcoholic and describe what that was like and what your relationship was like? Wow. Well, my mom first admitted to me that she was an alcoholic when I was 13 and um, she, but it had been going on for some years at that point. Uh, that was, I, I talk about it actually in my book. Uh, it was a Saturday morning and I remember it very vividly because I got very, you know, I decided I was going to confront her and uh, she was ironing and she had vodka uh, in the, on the rocks in a glass uh, designed to look like water, of course, so that I wouldn't, you know, no one would question it. And I marched in and asked her if she was, if she thought she was an alcoholic and told her, you know, what's that I was on, that I knew what was going on. And I was just enraged when it happened. And I was so sure that I was going to be the person that stopped it all, you know, at 13. And um, she did admit it to me. And, but that uh, didn't change much um, in terms of what transpired. So she went on to keep drinking and she went to rehab four different times over the next 40 years. The last time when she was 77, which is almost unheard of in um, alcohol recovery. First of all, most alcoholics don't live that long. Secondly, it's just not something that we talk about is um, in the senior population. And um, yeah, and she went to a place for the reluctant to recover a nine month inpatient program at the age of 77. And I'm pretty sure she was the, I know she was the oldest, uh, the oldest resident patient then. And I'm sure she probably may still be the oldest they've ever had. Um, but unfortunately she drank three weeks after that. So it's uh, it was a lifelong struggle and ultimately, unfortunately claimed her life. Um, actually she died of an alcoholic binge just after her 81st birthday. So it was something that I have dealt with, like I said, most of my life. It really um, was the underscore of our relationship and our and our whole family's life for many, many years. So when she started uh, drinking, what what describe a situation? So she was drunk. You were thirteen. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like? You know, yeah, what was that happening? She, she was really, uh, she was a, uh, a binge kind of drinker anyway. She drank. So she kind of, uh, typically I would get home from school or after school activities and I would come home and she would just be sort of passed out on the couch. She just couldn't, she would, that was kind of her MO in the afternoon. She would drink and then fall asleep watching TV on the couch. And, um, so you know, I would come home from school or whatever, and I would be all wound up wanting to talk about my day and tell her about, you know, activities. And she would be incoherent and slurring and just not, you know, I can remember, you know, an episode where I was, and, you know, as a young girl, you're kind of still not, you're trying to figure things out. And I was, and I'd get embarrassed by her behavior, you know, friends with me, and she'd be acting like that. And I try to just 
say, oh, she's she's still sleeping. She sleeps so hard. And, you know, just kind of try to to shrug it off. Uh, and then one time I had friends with me and she got up and she went over and, and instead of going into the bathroom, went over to the dishwasher and started to pull down her pants to go to the bathroom because she was so out of it. And I was just mortified. You know, I was just just shocked. And um, and those are just little, you know, it was just it went on for so long that the early memories of it um, aren't as strong as the later memories of it and all the different issues that would come down the pike that I had no way of anticipating back then. It was also um, something that was one of those hidden kind of things. My dad was a superintendent of schools, so I remember when I first challenged her about being an alcoholic and saying, why don't you get help? And her excuse was it would ruin your father's career. And so that was an excuse that she used and something that actually uh, I didn't even broach the subject with my dad. We didn't even talk about it for another three years until I was about 16. And he then finally got brave enough to talk to me about it. And I remember him calling it mom's little secret. And uh, so that was mom's little secret was something that that perpetuated and kept with us for years and years. Mm -hmm. Do you think it started out because when I think back in the 50s, it was so hip for women to start drinking and smoking. Yeah. This led to her alcoholism or do you think I think that. I think that she started drinking, she started drinking in the 70s. And I think it was more like, I think that, um, I don't know, my, my, I don't remember this very well, but my sisters tell me that there was a, uh, a doctor in this, we lived in an apartment complex, and I would, they would come down to watch me in the pool, I was little. And he was, you know, he was a doctor, he had the afternoons, whatever off. And so they would have a drink poolside and that's kind of where it started mm -hmm. and then you know from there I think she was just who knows I these days we use the term self-medicating I don't know that we necessarily use that terminology back then but I think that what happened probably was a an innocent habit or an innocent exploration that then became something that she used on a on the regular to dampen her emotions or her negative feelings and kind of numb out and then it just kept going yeah yeah so when did you recognize that you had a problem with alcohol when when did you say wait a minute yeah you know it's funny because I would have told you that I didn't ever have a problem with alcohol I um was very very cautious with because my mother I you know my mother uh, personified what an alcoholic was to me. I was very uh, <laughs> uh, critical of people that drank too much. I didn't never, I never liked to get to a point where I was feeling altered or silly or, you know, I just, that loss of control because I was, I had experienced it so often with my mother that, and it just drove me crazy not being able to have a conscious conversation with her and logical conversation. It drove me crazy. So I was always super um, cognizant of that. And so the thing of it is, is that instead I was drinking, you know, <laughs> I, I just, I would drink to a point where I 
never got myself, allowed myself to get to being intoxicated, but I drank three or four drinks per night over a slow period of time. And what became, and what was always in the back of my mind and a situation for, you know, 30 plus years, there was always anxiety associated with fear of becoming an alcoholic or or crossing over a line or acting like my mother, right? So I had this, I lived in this constant state of anxiety that I just sort of assumed or, or accepted that it was, that was just what was going to happen, right? That was just my lot because at being the adult child of an alcoholic, I was just, you know, predetermined to have to deal with this anxiety not realizing, not really ever looking at it from the other side and thinking, well, if I never, if I didn't drink this much, I wouldn't have all this anxiety. And, you know, I, I was so committed to trying to control it all that I never wanted to think about the idea of actually not doing it. I couldn't, I could not conceive of a time when I wouldn't want to have a drink after work. Mm-hmm. Did your drinking at all affect your family life, work, and and just just the lifestyle, or was it just no. kind of like just keep just drinking? Yeah, no, it didn't, and I think that's a pretty slippery slope that a lot of um, women live in. Mm-hmm. This idea that because it's not costing me, I I'm, I didn't hit some sort of rock bottom because I didn't have some sort of epic DUI or you know <laughs> terrible hangover that caused me not to be able to go into the office. I mean, you know, none of that. It was, but at the same time, what I didn't want to acknowledge or look at were all the health trade-offs that I was making, the weight gain, the, um, just the, the, the lack of any energy to do anything else. I'm sorry for me still, if I, you know, what, by the time, if I have two drinks, I'm, I'm pretty much done for the night, you know, I'm not going to be doing anything very productive. Mm -hmm. So it's, it was a really the, the realization of everything that it was truly costing me. And there's, there's a whole bunch of science that I share and I share on the podcast and I share in my book about all the things that I didn't realize that it was impacting And so, um, you know, once I became, it it wasn't, it was a two year process for me um, of really changing everything, changing all of my thoughts around alcohol, changing my patterns, changing my behaviors and really becoming someone now. I, I said this recently on the podcast, I, I consider myself an alcohol minimalist now. (laughs) I don't, I'm not completely, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not completely alcohol free. I don't, I would never use the term sober or in recovery or anything like that because in my, I wasn't ever someone that had a physical dependency on alcohol. So. And you know, this is what you're mentioning is I came across all these years in my training with training clients. So many women, they come home, have a drink or two. And then then it's like, oh, it's dinner time. Let's have another drink or two. And by the time they're done, the whole bottle is gone. And that repeats itself over and over every night. And they're like, oh, Uh, one example with that is that somebody 
said, oh, I'm switching now to one drink a night. And I was like, oh, this is great. You know, no bottle a night. And she says, yeah, now I'm drinking, I don't know what, scotch or some kind of heart liquor. Right. And she's making herself a mixed drink now every night. So I'm like, okay, well, what's the trade-off here? And, you know, what are some of the signs when you talk about alcohol, Molly? Like the signs of uh, alcohol abuse, what would they, what would that look like? Some. Well, there's a very, um, a lot of great information from the CDC and from the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. And really, we, we used to use the terminology alcoholic. And today in this, in this world, they don't call it that anymore. They call it alcohol use disorder. And the, there's a very clear scale going from all the way from moderate, I mean, mild to moderate to severe alcohol use disorder. And that gives you some very clear um, things to look at for, for your use and determining where you are on that scale. Um, the other part of it is, is really from a health perspective, the CDC recommends that to, for, for women, moderate drinking is no more than seven drinks per week. And that's seven units of alcohol. So units are, are a very, um, uh, a very clear, or it's actually in the U.S., it's seven standard drinks. And a standard drink in the United States is 14 ounces of alcohol or 14 grams, I'm sorry, of alcohol, which then you have to look at whatever you're drinking to determine the alcohol by volume, because whether it's a, you know, a bottle of wine that's a 12 to 13% alcohol by volume, if it's a spirit, if it's a beer, if it's an IPA, which is what I love, a stronger beer, right? They, all of those things matter in terms of really monitoring your use. But the, the thing that I like to say to people is, you know, you can look at all the statistics and all of that, that physical recommendation. I mean, one drink per day and no more than three drinks on any given day for a female. And that's moderate, all right? But there has been no clinical proof that there is any benefit to drinking alcohol, any physical health benefit to drinking alcohol if you don't already drink it. So nobody should be going out and adding alcohol to their lives under the auspice of saying, well, drinking red wine is good for your heart or you know, anything else like that. It's, it's simply not true. Yeah. So you think about the Mediterranean diet. That's what came to mind when you said yeah. red wine is like always, I mean, Italy always have a glass of red wine with lunch and dinner or two. Um, but, you know, is it really true that these benefits are there or are they just part of the marketing? Well, it's really what, what you have to ask yourself with the Mediterranean diet, especially, is it really the, the wine that's helping them or is it their work, their physical, their physical activity, their, the olives, the olive oil, the fish, the, the fresh vegetables, you know, there's so much more to it. And what I'm telling you in terms of, of the clinical proof is that there's been no science on alcohol that shows a causative effect, a causative benefit effect. Everything with alcohol is associative because they can't take, they can't, you can't just drink alcohol. You have to eat, you have to, you know, right. So you right. can never, you can never just pinpoint alcohol, but what we do know about alcohol is that it is a known toxin. It is a carcinogen and it is a, you know, it's a gasoline ethanol, which is the chemical substance underneath all of our alcoholic drinks. 
is an additive for fuel. <laughs> it's a, it's not, you know, this is not the, the, the chemical property itself has very, very, the, or the chemical drug itself has very limited therapeutic effect and a very long and storied history of lots of things that are bad for you when it comes to drinking alcohol. So when you think now of the rise, and I'm thinking particularly of clean wines, organic wines, can you speak to that? Is there a difference? Well, I think that the 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 thing about clean wines and or, organic wines is it's taking out all the, you know, the other stuff that's an additive in wine that might be bad for you, right? But it doesn't get rid of the alcohol and it, at the bottom core, the ethanol is what's the is the drug, is the chemical um substance that's actually known to be a carcinogen. That's the problem that actually impacts negatively, you know, it's a, it, there's a direct corollary for women between an increase in breast cancer and all sorts of other uh, esophageal cancer, throat, you know, lung cancer, I mean, not lung cancer, um, liver cancer, stomach cancer. So, you know, there's just a lot of different um, implications for alcohol for, for many different, like I said, many different cancers. And the, the link between being a positive impact for, for heart health is actually a little bit, again, misleading. There's a lot more science behind the negative impacts, especially for raising your blood pressure, which it does, and other impacts on cardiovascular health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my next question. So drinking, how does it affect our health? Yeah. It, and you just answered that question because yeah, you don't think about that. I talk about it in um, my ebook, um, Alcohol Truths, How Much is Safe? Because I, again, I wanted to reiterate, you know, I am not exclusively alcohol free, but I am very, very, I consider myself an alcohol minimalist and somebody who is going to be very mindful about every drink that I take. I want to make sure that I'm getting maximum benefit with minimum negative impact, right? So I have this, my ebook, Alcohol Truths, How Much is Safe? And it's really all about determining what is your own personal level of safe. And that means taking into consideration the physical impacts. The other part about your physical health and alcohol is that alcohol's effect on you is dynamic. What that means is that every single time you drink, you're not going to know what's, because it, it, the interactions are several. It depends on your age. It depends on your weight. It depends on how much you've eaten. It depends on how hot you are. It depends on how stressed out you are. It depends. There's all of this stuff because it affects our neurochemistry and our body's chemistry, both. And so every time you drink, it's kind of like, I say, it's like, a, it's like having your own personal Petri dish. You know, you're going to have to figure it out. You need to be mindful of how it feels and what's going on with your body. And, you know, that's, that's just something to take into consideration. I don't think that you, people need to completely eliminate drinking from their lives, but when they do drink, they need to be very mindful about it and they need to um, make sure that it's aligned with their long-term goals for both health and um, social health and financial health, all of those things. Yeah. Are men and women affected differently by alcohol? Yeah, they actually are because women actually, the, the science shows that women lack a, a, a certain, um, uh, oh shoot, I'm not going to be able to remember what the 
the the name of it is, but basically we we process alcohol differently, and that's one of the reasons that women uh, do not uh, get get intoxicated faster. Not it it isn't just simply because we are smaller and typically smaller and lower weight and things like that. There's we actually lack a chemical um, that or produce less of a chemical in our bodies that helps us process alcohol. Okay, uh, that's that's a good explanation because sometimes you see pe- men that drink like like the, the typical. I'll drink you under the table kind of thing. Like yeah. I remember that from the college years. Ago. Yeah. Like, hey, let's just go drinking. Right. Right. You know, it's a, it's a culture. I mean, the thing of it is, is that once you start really becoming aware of all the programming that goes on for you in your brain, all the subconscious programming, all the advertising, all the memes, everything, all the messages that we hear all the time about alcohol once you really become aware of that and you counterbalance that with the science behind alcohol, mm-hmm. you're just kind of left scratching your head. Like if they, there's, I, I know in stuff that I read and stuff that I talk, look at all the time, the bottom line is like, if, if alcohol were a drug right now, like if we were, if it was just coming onto the market, the FDA would ban it. I mean, that's how, that's how dangerous it is for us. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting to see, you know, it's a, it's a big industry and it makes mm. a ton of money for yeah. somebody out there. And a you- ton of money for a lot of people out there, to be honest. I mean, that's one of the problems. I mean, you know, there's a, you think about all the implications of the alcohol industry and all the service workers and all the restaurant, it, it impacts so many people that it's not going. And that's one of the things you really have to, to get confident with, with your own decisions about drinking is the alcohol industry the advertising, it's not going anywhere. The alcohol being available at your neighborhood grocery store, not going anywhere. That is never, you know, at your favorite restaurant, at a ballpark, it's always, it's going to be around you. So you have to get to a spot where you are making your decisions for your own relationship with alcohol based on your own, you know, your own goals and your own um, information and your own education on it. Yeah. Cause you know, the, the, the very, um, depicted uh, or the pictures that you see about our age group, women over 50, usually when we see a picture of women getting together, there's always a glass of wine in the picture and everybody is super happy and everybody's drinking and I'm getting ready for a photo shoot. And my photographer said, so what is that something that your age group does a lot? And the first thing that came to mind, drinking. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa. And I said, I don't want to have a picture with a glass of wine. There's nothing wrong. Like you said, I love wine uh, with drinking. But it's just the the idea that we can sit around with all holding a cup of tea or a cup of whatever, water, lemon water is just so suggestive mm-hmm. that it's, that's, that's what women our age are doing. We're sitting around drinking socially, or yeah. when I hear somebody saying, uh, oh, let's meet for a glass of wine. I often have said, well, how about you meet your friend for a Pilates class or a walk instead? Yeah. You don't have to sit and drink and you can still be social, which is I think the social aspect around drinking is so broad. Can you talk yeah. to that about? Well, it is. And the, the, the thing of it is that I would challenge everybody to start asking themselves is, you know, when you're going to meet your friends, 
what is it that you're really looking forward to? Are you looking forward to connecting with people and sharing, you know, and hearing what's going on in their lives, having that social interaction or because that's really what's most important in that in that scenario, right? It's the it's the relationships that you have. And yet <laughs> the narrative that we often tell ourselves is, oh, I just love my glass of wine. Oh, I just love this. When you start really asking yourself, you really understand. And that's, I mean, I had that same thought. I literally thought that I liked beer too much to ever give it up. Like, seriously, that was what I said to myself. Oh, there's just no way. Like, I could never, would never do a full 30-day break from alcohol because, no, I like my beer too much. I did not realize that by simply repeating that to myself all the time, right, that I actually created the desire in myself because that's what I told myself, right? There's this, this dynamic at work, and I talk about that a lot, a learning for me that my thoughts were what created my feeling of desire. I used to blame that desire on my genetics, on my alcoholic background, my, my growing up with an alcoholic parent, mm -hmm. never putting it, the power to control it out of my, you know, out of my sphere and into something else that I couldn't control, right? And it's the same thing for anybody that really, and again, if, if you're drinking alcohol and you are, not having any negative implications. If you're still working out all the time, if you're sleeping well, that's a big one, ladies, big especially one. if you're a woman of midlife, if you're sleeping okay, if you're not gaining weight around your middle, if you're, you know, if you're productive, happy, everything else, then, and you're not concerned about future health, you know, the, the risk sides, right? If you, if you are, if you've done the research, you understand the implications of alcohol in your life and you're comfortable and you're making good decisions. Great. However, if you're a woman who is having some sleep issues, if you are constantly having anxiety, the thing about alcohol and what I didn't realize is that alcohol has a biphasic effect. And it means that basically in the beginning, it increases both the depressant action in our brain and the stimulant action in our brain. And we, it's, it's an, you know, it's an outside agent, right? Coming into our brain. And so our neurochemistry gets altered and more, the more alcohol you drink after a certain point in time, when it's coming, when you're, when it's dissipating and leaving your system, your brain's trying to get back to homeostasis to kind of average, right? And so to counteract that depressant fact effect and it's leaving the brain, the brain's normal neurochemistry kicks up the stimulants to try to bring the brain back to, to even. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the term, some people say hangxiety because a hangover and anxiety, this, this, the day after people drink too much, they may notice this reflex anxiety. And for people that are drinking repeatedly or habitually or daily like I was, you can feed yourself that that it goes gets into a loop just because you basically, every time you start to come down off the alcohol, you get this rebound anxiety effect and you want to take a drink to get rid of that. So you do the same thing just over and over again. Mm -hmm. So you touched a little bit on habits. Talk a yeah. little bit more about, more about the habits that you told yourself that you couldn't live without your IPA. <laughs> right. What, 
what other lies do we tell ourselves or what or how how can we identify saying, oh. wait a minute, why am I telling myself this? Well, so this is, you know, I think one of the biggest ones that I hear all the time is I need a drink to take the edge off. Ooh, like, yeah. you know, like that kind of attitude, like I have to have a drink every day to take the edge off my day. Like that's kind of just the, the, the beginning of it. Anytime, anything that you're telling yourself about, you know, that you, I, that I just love this too much. I just need this too much. I just, I have to, um, I enjoy, you know, or it's, oh, I, another one is like for, um, just social lubrication, right? Like people can't imagine going to a party and not like, oh, I have to have a drink to loosen up. Like I, you know, that kind of mentality, it's all just thoughts that you're telling yourself that perpetuate the habit, right? That continue you in that loop. You have to be able to change those attitudes and understand that alcohol, again, like once you really understand that alcohol doesn't exactly decrease stress, it can actually have a rebound effect and increase stress and anxiety. Then you start to work around in your brain and start, stop associating and stop thinking, I need a drink to take the edge off. Then I start thinking alcohol actually causes me to be anxious. So I want to figure out different ways to cope with stress and anxiety. There are better ways. And just repeating, you know, telling myself and changing my narrative on what is possible for me and what I actually need and what I actually want and what is actually true about alcohol. That means you have to become really honest about yourself. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> That's the, you know, you have to be... Um, I mean, the whole thing for me was understanding that, that I was the person that the things weren't the in control, alcohol wasn't causing my desire, my work wasn't causing my stress, right? It's always 100% about your thoughts about all of those things. And so changing and being able to understand that I actually had the power in my own brain to change my relationship with alcohol and all of my, any habit that you have that doesn't serve you, it's always going to be about changing your thoughts and changing who you really want to be and understanding that you are the one that gets to choose what you think. Not, you know, this, these aren't facts. I, the fact wasn't that I just loved alcohol too much. That's not a fact. That's a, just, you know, that's just a story that I was telling myself. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who listens to this podcast and says, okay, I want to drink less or, or I'm going to look at it. Now let's, let's start with, I want to drink less. I'm yeah. drinking a half a bottle every night. What would be like a first step? Yeah. To well, so for me, the first step was, like I said, so first of all, get really clear on your goals and your thinking about alcohol and what you really want alcohol to mean in your life and how you want to incorporate it into your life. But if you are really seriously just thinking, okay, but I really just want to cut back every day, you have to plan ahead. So, it, and I tell people to plan ahead and use that logical forefront, you know, the logical prefrontal cortex, not your impulse center, not your reward center that gets firing after you, you know, when you're, when you're feeding a habit, right? Yeah, exactly. So you use your prefrontal cortex, you make a plan ahead of time. And at first I always tell people, just meet yourself where you're at. 
So if you're, if you're drinking a half a bottle of wine in the first week, you know, we're just going to say, okay, I'm going to drink three glass, three measured glasses of wine per night. And I'm going to meet myself where I'm at. I'm going to, I'm going to reflect on it after the fact, I'm going to look back. Did I, did I do what I, did I stick to my plan? Sticking to the plan is important. Being able to keep the promise to yourself. And then the next week on a couple of different days, try plan for two drinks and stick to the plan. <laughs> so it's an attitude of, you know what I mean? And then be willing to understand that just because you've decided that you're going to drink less and just because you're motivated to do it, when you go off plan and when you do not follow the plan, that does not mean that everything has gone wrong and you can't do it and you can't figure it out. It's simply an opportunity to learn what you were thinking at that moment when you decided not to drink on plan and being able to look ahead and, and predict, okay, I'm setting this up, but I know that I'm going to not, I'm going to mess up. And when I mess up, I'm not going to allow myself to quit trying. I'm going to say, I'm just going to take this as a time to learn more and I'm still going to keep going. I'm going to figure this out. It's not an excuse to tell yourself, well, this is just not for me. I'm, I'm, I'm just someone who's going to drink three, but you know, it's, it's, it's just an opportunity, just knowing ahead of time, predicting failure instead of being derailed by a, a, a failure. And I think also that, that, that applies to peer pressure. Yeah. It's like you're going, oh, well, when you're sitting at a dinner table and everybody is uh, drinking wine and you or whatever they're drinking, it doesn't matter, beer, it doesn't matter, alcohol, and you're not drinking. And then it's like, well, you're not having a drink. Why are you not drinking? Oh, let's have, why did you have a beer or something? Mm-hmm. I think that's a very big, the, the peer pressure I feel is, is so great sometimes that we get beaten down by that. Yeah, I think, and again, that just, it comes back to, planning ahead. So, you know, you're going to go into a scenario and you're in you, you know what you want to do. So if you plan ahead and you're like, you know, I want to be able to enjoy this social, social situation without alcohol, I am committed to not drinking this time. You know, when I go out, just try it on. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be a, you know, a, a, a lifelong mission, right? You don't have to say to yourself, I'm never going to drink out with my friends again, but try things on, test it out, see how you feel when you go into that scenario. And when people are, you know, pressuring you or saying to you, just have a drink, just, you know, plan ahead for what your answer is going to be, for what that is going to, um, you know, what your reason that reason is for not wanting to, you know, and be very confident in your own mind and understand that when somebody is asking you to do something to drink, whether it's drinking or doing anything else that has nothing to do with them and everything to do with you, they use a narrative in your mind that helps you empathize with them, that they have to feel like they need to, you know, to, to encourage you to drink. Something's going on with them, not with you that is causing them to want to direct your behavior, you know? Yeah. You know, I found that when we're before COVID, when we were going out with friends or meeting friends for dinner and I chose not to have a drink, people were just like, oh, okay. And it turned out that they actually, and I paid attention, they drank less 
than they normally would. So instead of their two or three classes, they usually ended up with one, maybe two at the most. It was interesting to notice because I just kept drinking bubble water. I'm like, yeah, this is great. And what's really, I think, important too, then is to always, you know, to really celebrate those times when you do those things, because the next day and, and remind yourself the next day when you get up, you know, oh, it feels so good to get up and not have that even that little dehydration from having a couple of drinks or your brains or you just didn't sleep very well after you get a good night's sleep and you're like, you know, it feels so good to not have to worry about whether or not I I'm going to have a drink or not have a drink, you know? What would you say to our listeners um, as a final remark, what to do when they want to change their drinking habits? I, so for me, my, I just did an episode, actually, I think it's just coming out this week on my alcohol, my intuitive drinking alcohol toolbox. And so I, I, like I said, first of all, create a plan. Second of all, be be ready and be prepared for the times when you fall off your plan. Educate yourself on alcohol science. There are just a bazillion books, podcasts, um, websites, articles, you know, lots of good information on helping you understand, really truly understand the science behind alcohol. And once you start to understand the science and the effects on your neurochemistry, it becomes a lot less sexy and a lot less, you know, glamorous to drink and a lot more um, concerning because it is a chemical toxin. And lastly, I would say find, find a tribe, find a community, find some from some online groups that are, that are, there's some great ones. Um, really, truly this, I, th- I know this episode actually is coming out much later, but if you, if people go to my podcast, Call Breaking the Bottle Legacy. Look for the episode, My Alcohol Toolbox, uh, My Intuitive Drinking Toolbox. Um, There's going to be a lot of lists and links in the show notes for all of these resources for books and for um, groups. And I have my own private Facebook group, so I would love to have anybody that's um, that's looking or curious about changing their relationship with alcohol. Again, I do not say that you can never drink again, but I think or that you should that you shouldn't. However, there are people that make the choice to be alcohol free and that's a great choice too. I'm not saying either, you know, there's, there's anything, it all works and less is better, right? So drinking, getting better is better. <laughs> and so I would encourage There's nothing to it. It's better is right. better. <laughs> right. So it doesn't matter if it's, if you're going down from drinking a bottle to a half bottle, that's, that's better. Right. And so it's all um, small steps. It like I said, it took me two years to really come to a point where, to the point where I got. And um, now I'm just so thankful that I did. And really, um, I am at peace with my relationship with alcohol. And I say past, present, and future. That means that I don't harbor anger and resentment to my mother, even though she's deceased. I, I have a peaceful relationship with her too. I wish that she had understood that she had the power to change her relationship with alcohol. I wish that she understood that she could manage her own emotions and, and deal with that without it. Um, but at this, but you know, I have had the life, I, I have had the life that I needed to get to where I am. So. Yeah. So how can people reach you, Molly? Yeah. So again, breaking the bottle legacy available on all any, all podcasts app, you know, uh, 
platforms, wherever you would find it. And um, you can reach me also at www.mollywatts.com. That's Molly with a Y and Watts with an S. And then do you on Facebook with yeah. your Facebook, the, the, I just, the Molly Watts author, and then the um, Facebook group is called change your alcohol habit. And it's a private group. So, but you can search for it on Facebook, but it's private so that if you're there, no one has to know you're in there. No one's going to see your posts or your comments, but um, you can look for it online. You can refer back to the, this podcast episode. If you're not sure if you want to reach out, but um, this is the way you can find Molly. So I want to say thank you so much for being here, Molly. This was a very good, amazing topic, I think. Yeah. We're still in the pandemic and we're at the hopefully at the end. And all of us, and that includes me, we've been drinking too much. Because like you said, we're the, it's the stress, it's the excuses, it's this and that and the other. And um, I think that's a good way to bring it to the forefront and that we're not stuck with this habit. Yeah, it's... Um... You know, just make sure that your drinking is, like I said, it, it's, you're getting maximum benefit and minimal harm. Yep. And so thank you listeners. I'm so glad you joined us today for this amazing episode. And if you want to reach out, all the links will be in the show notes. So it's easy for you to just click and get a hold of Molly's program of her podcast and so forth. But please reach out to us on social media. You know, I'm at Heike Yates on Instagram and Heike Yates Pursue Your Spark on Facebook and all other social media outlets under Heike Yates and reach out to us. Let us know what this episode meant to you. If you had any questions, don't be embarrassed. Reach out because Molly will be more than happy to help you with anything you need when it comes to changing your habits. And in this case, the alcohol habits. Yeah. So Absolutely. with that, my friends, we are out of here. Thank you so much and ciao. Thanks, Heike. My pleasure. <laughs>